This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. And welcome everybody to a special episode of the Animaniacast. What's with the sappy music and the dancing? I don't do pathos and I can't dance, don't ask me. Wait a minute. You look familiar. Unappealing, but familiar. And sloppy, that's the director, Charlton Woodchuck. Peanuts! What are you doing here, you old son of a hack? It's Charlton. It's written in my contract that when I was old enough, I'd get to direct. Yeah, Skippy has the same deal. Love you, babe, but we're losing our light. And welcome once again to the Animaniacast. We're the only podcast out there that's dedicated to the animated television series, Animaniacs. And here we explore the series episode by episode, exploring all those cultural references and gags and stuff that we can find. But today, we have another special episode. <laughs> but first, let's get the introductions out of the way. I am Joey, and joining me once again is my brother, Nathan. Do you know the Nathan old anthem? <laughs> Across the country in Georgia, it's Kelly. Hi there. And joining us for the first time is one of the writers and directors of Animaniacs. It's Otto Payton. Hey, everybody. Humble, lovable cartoonist. <laughs> nice to see you, sir. Uh, welcome to the show. You know, this is quite an honor. You've quite, quite, the, quite the resume when it comes to Animaniacs work. Uh, I, I got busy early, and I don't think I've ever had more fun on a show. It was a golden age at the time, and we knew it. And we knew we were in a really special space. And you know, getting into the history, we were coming off of uh, a little bit of a desert of creativity. And uh, what Tom and Mr. Spielberg and others put together was a real opportunity to kind of tap into the, the sort of entertainment and comedy that we loved growing up and we knew that we were doing something truly special in fact we knew it was so good that we had about 40 episodes in the can before we premiered and you know with most cartoons you make it you put it up and then you you struggle to get next week's up in time so we had time to kind of savor and know uh, and anticipate that the world was going to really love the stuff that we were in the middle of crafting oh fantastic uh, well we're, we're you know we have so much to talk about uh Today, tonight, and let's just get right into it because uh, we, we want to find out as much as we can for uh, your history with the show. Uh, but before we do, let's let's just talk about what you were doing before you started working with Animaniacs, and I guess really how you got involved in the show in the first place. Well, it's a long and boring story, and it changes every <laughs> single time I tell it. Uh, but the uh, the official version is that. Uh, uh, my parents were Americans. They were uh, teachers uh, working in West Africa. And so I spent my early years living in northern Nigeria in a mud hut with a thatched roof surrounded by uh, um, basically the 19th century. Uh, Audu was the name of the emir, the king of the city. So I was named after him, which is a good political move for a, a little yellow-haired baby in the middle of uh, <laughs> sub-Saharan Africa. Absolutely. We uh, had lots of adventures there, which kind of folded into a lot of the storytelling I did later, but uh, also went back to sort of junior high school years. Then uh, from there, uh, Northwestern University, where I studied theater and drama. And uh, I had, uh, for about two seconds, I thought I might be an actor, but then I went to uh, 
uh, commercial audition. I waited eight hours to blow my nose into a Kleenex. They said, thanks, we'll call. And I thought, I've got to be on the other side of this equation. So uh, I studied theater to be a director for the stage. But I'd always been a cartoonist. I'd always been you know, an obsessive doodler. And living overseas, we didn't have TV. We didn't have radio. So you know, drawing and books. And you know, what I didn't know then is I was uh, charging the creative batteries for all of the efforts that would follow. Um, so I then came out to California to uh, work on a graduate degree at UCLA, which is where I discovered my true tribe. Uh, at the UCLA Animation Workshop. So I plugged in there, um, learned animation. Actually, this is a little bit of a sidebar story. When I was an undergrad, um, uh, an older student named Tim Johnson was making a student film. I'd never seen the process of making an animated film before. He went on to be one of the earliest and greatest directors over at uh, DreamWorks. Mm. And in fact, he's still over there. So I remember painting cells with him and really learning the process. He was the art director of the Humor Magazine at Northwestern. And then uh, later I graduated up and took on that role. Um, I started doing kind of, you know, gag cartoons, uh, editorial cartoons, and political cartoons. So then got to California, UCLA Animation Workshop really kind of honed the skills um, that would serve me well in my professional life. It was one person, one film. So you kind of learned every aspect from, you know, writing to storyboarding to doing your own records, putting it all together, timing it, and finishing your film, which was an interminable process. I like it so much better now when we have an army of extraordinary people around us to support us. Um, but then after I graduated, I was popping all over the place, uh, storyboards for live action, commercials, uh, did the uh, Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios. So I got to go on the set and watch Dark Brown and the DeLorean, which was wow. kind of a thrill. Uh, and then, um, this is a bit of a Hollywood story, I answered an ad in the Hollywood Reporter saying, um, you know, storyboard artists wanted, and found out that it was something called The Simpsons. So um, there I was. Uh, hired on to second season of The Simpsons as a storyboard cleanup artist, revisionist, but unfortunately the very end of the season. So I had all of one or two shows and then we were all let go. But I made an impression and they brought me in next door because it was Klasky Chupo at the time and I worked on the pilot episode of Rugrats, um, which was tons of fun. I just remember going home to my uh, wife and we had a brand new baby at the time, so it was kind of like plugged in right into our lives. I said, these are the ugliest characters I've ever seen in my life. This will never, this will never <laughs> Um, and, of course, it didn't. We got canceled after the first season. It wasn't until reruns that they resurrected the show and it became the uh, beloved BMF that is still, you know, uh, selling licensing 30 years later. Um, so Rugrats was a real good training ground. I uh, learned a lot about style and about staging, but I was still a little on the green side. I remember taking my portfolio over to Family Dog and Brad Bird saying, next which was kind of a tremendous opportunity because then I ended up at Warner Brothers just a few days later where I plugged in and found a family that are still, you know, beloved friends and colleagues to this day. Uh, I worked um, with Art Vitello and uh, Leonard Robinson on Tasmania. And I think drawing Taz is something every cartoonist should do, uh, early chapters, because it's just pure, <laughs> unrivaled id. And then as that show wrapped up, um, they needed uh, artists in the next building on Animaniacs, which had already gone through kind of preliminary development. Uh, Albert Jimeno and Rich Aarons and, um, and um, uh, Rusty Mills were kind of already over there. So uh, myself and people like Al Ziegler, uh, who was another uh, great, great director on the show, kind of came over and we jumped into storyboards. And um, that's where I just sort of really discovered how magical the show was. I storyboarded um, Critical Condition, which is, our, of course, the uh, Abducted by Aliens story, and Turkey Jerky. And that's where I, I got my first 
note. We were on you know the eighth floor, and Ruger and the writers were up, upstairs, and Ruger was this elusive character that would kind of scurry around. You see him going out for a, a break once in a while, but yeah, frankly, we were a little scared of him. He was such an intense creative personality but i got a note on the front of one of my storyboards saying this guy gets it love it of course it was only you know six months later that i got uh redo make funny on the cover of a storyboard which was so humbling but also a good lesson uh redo make funny um uh, so yeah, it's how do redo make funny so uh that's how i kind of you know found the group and um another thing that's terrific is you know in the old days You'd have 13 episodes of a show and everyone get laid off. You'd go off and, you know, be a substitute school teacher or, you know, build shelves in a warehouse as a temp. But because we had an order of 65 episodes and because we were sort of so protected by, um, you know, the Spielberg name and presence at the front of our show, we really knew we could, you know, take a larger chunk of time and, and really kind of find the magic of the show. And there's, you know, there's so many essential ingredients there. And we'll talk more about that a little later in your podcast. Fantastic. Um uh, I do, you know, most people have a, a familiarity with uh, how live action things like movies and plays are directed. Um, but what does an animation director do? I mean, did your background in drama and and physically, I, I want to say physically directing people, did that help in any way in animation direction? Absolutely, because a good animator is an actor who uses the point of a pencil to create a performance. And in some ways you can put a magnifying glass or a filter on a real performance and go places you could never go um, outside of a fantasy medium. But the process of animation is extremely disciplined. Um, it, unlike live action where you, know, you say, show me what's on camera three, show me what's on camera two, just shoot and shoot and shoot and then we'll put it all together later. Animation is pre-edited because the labor involved in creating one second, which can be anywhere from 12 to 30 drawings, is just too uh, intensive and too expensive to be wasting any time, which is where script and storyboard and record, all of those are essential parts, and they fall into a very specific developmental stage. Obviously, you start with premise and script, the kind of core inspiration that comes from the writing team, uh, from there... In a perfect world, you record the actors next because that way the people who are performing with the pencils, the storyboard artists, are reacting to really strong creative choices, um, comic timing, uh, and so forth. So the performance of the actor then kind of lays down the spine of timing for a cartoon. From there, the storyboard. And the storyboard is critical. It is the architectural blueprints of the film you hope to make. And also, this is the cheapest place to change your mind. Uh, and most importantly in film, to look at what you've got and react to it and see if you have a better idea. Because uh, if you just execute what's on the page, it'll only be as good as what's on the page. But if you are able to brainstorm, bounce it around, crack people up with a drawing, it will expand and become something that has a life of its own. So the storyboard itself is, again, very labor intensive. Uh, for a 22-minute show, you might have Three to 400 scenes. Each scene might be anywhere from three to 10 drawings. You know, you might have some line of dialogue, um, probably from Paul Rugg saying, a battle ensues, a group of monkeys enter the labyrinth in twos and threes, and they say, hey, it's only a sentence. Like, yeah, it's only a sentence. It's the rest of my life to draw it. So there's, uh, <laughs> there's uh, um, a little bit of discipline and economy that comes into a board uh, because the artist only can draw so much or fit so much into a scene. Um, so 
from a storyboard point of view, you're looking for a number of things. Uh, there's a little bit of timing that happens in a storyboard. You have to choose the moment you're going to draw. And if you draw the moment where everything's flat and everything's stable, that's boring. You know, what I would do then, especially the stuff with uh, Wacko, I always tried to find that off-balance moment where his weight was on one foot, where the water balloon was about to land, where there was just a little bit of defying of physics, because that's the moment that has a life of its own and an energy. And in some ways, what you're doing with the storyboard is you're communicating not only with the audience, but also with the animation team. Those folks often only get a very small portion of the larger show. They can't they can't see the whole thing. So your drawing is essential to give them the passion of the moment. So choosing the right drawing to execute kind of goes to timing. There's also staging, just like in live action. You've got to figure out upshot, downshot, continuity, um, all of the sort of normal rules of live action filmmaking. So make sure that something doesn't pop so that you're not kind of expanding too much. Um, and, you know, another quote I love is that, Film is real life with the boring parts cut out. So as you storyboard, you're trying to find your way of sort of jumping forward to the moments that matter. Um, so you're storyboarding in a way that manages timing, that creates overall staging, that indicates where cuts are, and then, of course, um, the dynamics of performance on, on top of all of that. Um, then when you get finished with the storyboard, um, typically you'll build an animatic. Nowadays we use it, you know, computers, we do it electronically. Back in the old days, we used to use film, and we would actually save money by shooting it on a negative and then play the negative so that you'd see almost like a chalk drawing version of uh, the film. When I was on The Simpsons, they would show stuff like that. They'd show the, the errors that were happening overseas, and you'd have Marge doing Homer's line because they didn't know. Um, and then following that kind of trim down and edit, we go to exposure sheets. Exposure sheets are... Um, a frame by frame with, you know, 16 frames per second, 24 frames in a foot. Where's the blink? Where's the cushion? Where's the anticipation? So it's almost like uh, uh, writing music for a musician, but it's for the animation teams overseas. And this is where the comedy can be broken by somebody who doesn't understand sheet timing and can be saved by somebody who understands and sees the film. I always like to say that I don't get paid to make cartoons, but to share the ones I'm already watching. <laughs> so within the X sheets, um, we had some real talent on Animaniacs. And this is kind of an exciting part for me because we had people like Tom Ray and Norm McCabe who, I'm getting goosebumps right now, they were on Chuck Jones's crew, they were on Fritz Freeland's mm -hmm. crew, they were in their 60s and 70s, and I think Norm was in his 80s when he worked on Animaniacs. And I would go down the hall to their offices, and no names, but for some of them, if you got them before lunch and the vodka started, you could do <laughs> a lot. Um, and they had extraordinary skills that were the basis of the craft, the basis of the craft when it was invented at the early part of the 20th century. And I was really lucky. I was 26, 27. I was a young director. And to sit with these guys and learn what they had to teach was a lesson to me, not only in the art form, but also in how to be a good teacher to you know the next generation of artists and uh, animators. And I've been really fortunate. I'm at a point now where uh, I'm still learning and I'm still teaching uh, the, the diamonds in the rough that will be making the entertainment that I enjoy for the rest of my life. Mm. So exposure sheets. Um, then at that point, it goes uh, typically overseas. We were using studios like Acom and Coco. And if we were lucky, we got uh, Tokyo Movie, TMS. Um, they would 
do layout initially. And in my very first season as a director, we got boxes and boxes and boxes of files of drawings that would come back from overseas. And as a director, our job was to repair the drawings. If there was a pose that was wrong, we had to actually redraw it on full size, you know, 14 inch by, by 10 inch uh, animation paper. And it would go in a box and be sent back somewhere around the end of our first season. Uh, the whole industry shifted because the layout skills in Korea were improving and they were able to take that part of the job as well, which was kind of a little easier for us as a director. But um, it was, you know, at its core, a handcrafted medium. And in 2D, it, it really still is in spite of all of the support you get. So in terms of timelines, um, the writers you know, and others would have a certain amount of time. Directors had a very limited amount of time because everything had to be like an assembly line factory. You had to kind of start your show and finish your show. Um, in storyboards, we had three or four weeks. Um, in animatics, we had approximately a week. Um, we would then have one or two weeks for uh, doing sheet timing. It would go overseas for maybe 15 weeks, come back, we'd look at the first film, We'd vomit blood into buckets. We'd say, we know how to fix this. We'd get it right. Actually, not always. We had a lot of stuff that just came in as absolute you know, stellar stuff right mm -hmm. off the bat. Um, and then um, we, we cut it together, and then we lock it for audio. And that's when another layer of magic happened. This is where uh, Richard Stone and sound effects came in, and we really kind of put together um, the, final, the final actor, music and sound, would step on the stage. And uh, so the lifeline for a show as a whole, and it might be anywhere from 20 to 30 weeks. But by the time, you know, I'm on week four, I'm on my next 22 minutes of, of material as a director. Uh, directors typically had anywhere from three to five storyboard artists working for them. On a lot of series nowadays, you might have uh, three acts. Each act goes to a different storyboard artist. But we were making these shows in a very unusual way because it was a variety show. Tom would say the script is as long as the script needs to be. And I don't think I've ever had a show that had that fluidity in all the years since. So there might be something that came in at one minute. There might be something that came in at three minutes. There might be something that was a full half hour. Um, I did a whole bunch of the good idea, bad ideas, and those were just meant to be fillers. If we were a little short on a show, drop one in. Mm -hmm. And something that I remember distinctly is going to Tom's office. There was a whole wall. We were on the, this is like the 15th floor of the Imperial Bank building in Sherman Oaks. Um, I think that's that's looking down at you, Nathan, right now in Sherman Oaks. Um, and <laughs> mm -hmm. on this wall, he had these colored three by five cards. Each card was a short, and there was an indication of how much time. And then you see him up there with thumbtacks. He'd just be pulling them off and rearranging and rearranging because because we had the luxury of not just saying first show goes on the air. That's the first show. He had the ability to reorder these before we went to final format. And again, I don't think I've ever seen a series that had this fluidity. Uh, and he'd put together the 22 minutes and he was able to kind of manage themes, sometimes themes that were not there in the original writing because there might be scripts that were written weeks or months apart. But he had the ability to kind of get out of the trenches of the battlefield and get up in the air and, and uh, get the big picture. And that, I think, really helped him as a, a craftsman and an artist put together the series that we're still enjoying to this day. Fantastic. Um, Thanks. Uh, yeah, there's so much back and forth right there. I never realized how much there really was in in animation. You know, be, you know, from just being a fan of animation, um, I, I just assumed, oh, you know, you do the script, you do the storyboard, you send it back, back, you know, once or twice. You know, that's it. We have but, small jacks on the back of our head behind our ears. We just plug in and download. <laughs> <laughs> and we're clear. Hey, great opening, you guys. Thanks, Bill. We couldn't do it without you. 
Bill, it's people like you working behind the scenes that almost won us an Emmy. Here, have a bag of money. Wow, you guys are the greatest. <laughs> so, obviously, you've had uh, just experience in almost every facet of the cartoons, uh, like storyboarding, uh, animation, direction, producing, even voice acting. Um, is there a specific job you like the most, and or is there one that you find the most difficult? Uh, I think what I enjoy the most is anything that's pure invention and interpretation, because our job is, you know, depending on the show, sometimes you have to be very literal with the script. And sometimes you have the ability to interpret what they wanted, you know, reorder stuff a little bit and kind of uh, within the spirit of that cartoon, invent gags, especially pantomime gags. And this is where Wacko was my favorite because there was such an opportunity um, to be inventive in what he did because he's, you know, he's based on Harpo Marx, who is a magical creature, an imp who's sort of the wise fool with one foot in this world and one in another dimension. So um, I think I'd have to say working with storyboard artists is the best because you're not looking at a spectrum of it can be anything like the writers can. It's a spectrum of within these two perimeters, how can you make it extraordinary? So I think that's actually tons of tons of fun. Uh, I also like working with the voice actors because it's so immediate uh, when you are, again, um, asking for a little invention or if you've got a line that might be a mouthful of marbles and you're just like, is there a better way of saying this? And there's sort of a, a little improv that happens back and forth, especially with extraordinarily skilled people like you had on Animaniacs with, with Rob and, and Trest and, and that team. Um, they could just you know, pull it out. And, you know, it, it was it was so impressive to see how swift and smart they were in the moment. Um, so I think um, boarding is sort of first because you're world building in that space. And in some cases, a world that is a fantasy. And I think the next favorite is, um, you know, watching the performers um, turn thought into spirit into diaphragmatic muscles into <laughs> vibrations through the air into my ears into thought into laughter mm. nice kelly let's uh what do you got okay i i want to hear the spielberg stories <laughs> spielberg the name rings a bell <laughs> let's see oh um let's see okay somewhere in here um, <laughs> checking the notes good yeah all right so steven spielberg extraordinarily nice guy um there's a lot of uh character actors we got to work with and it was always impressive when they were just as nice and cool in real life as they were in your imagination or perception i think uh, mr spielberg fell into that same category um obviously he was busy i think he was directing uh the peter pan movie he was directing schindler's list while he was also doing animaniacs uh, and also uh jurassic park in fact so all of that was happening uh, while we were, you know, sitting in Sherman Oaks making cartoons, uh, he was gallivanting around the world. But I, I remember a couple of specific times he came by the studio. One time he brought all of his kids, and I used to have a 15-foot python skin hanging over my uh, my desk because as souvenir of my childhood in Africa. Suddenly I looked up, you know, headphones down, and there were all these young kids staring in awe, and uh, it was it was the, the family. Um, so uh, that that was kind of kind of neat having him come up there. There was another time where um, he was in the building. We kind of knew he was around, but you know, meeting with the writers. So you know, the rest of us didn't want to intrude. Although there was one fellow who cut out little paper dinosaur footprints and taped them to the carpet leading to his office in hopes that Spielberg would follow them into his office and he would get to meet Mr. Spielberg. But 
There's one point where Stephen walked into my office and I was having a little bit of a storyboard meeting. And I think he sort of recognized the, uh, the energy in the room. So shut the door, sat down, just started looking at the boards and chatting with us. And he started telling us about this amazing idea he had for a movie that never happened yet about Paul Revere. And he was describing shots and scenes and the lighting and the mood. And after about 10 minutes, the door slammed open and I heard somebody yell, he's in here. And a whole <laughs> bunch of, you know, um, followers and assistants, they all come running up, red faced out of breath. He's here. He's here. They're all calling out because he had gone AWOL and just kind of snuck off to hang out with the artists. Um, other stories. There's, uh, you know, there's one time where we were at the premiere of Animaniacs. My wife found this extraordinary fabrics uh, for Pinky in the Brain and Animaniacs. And so she sewed me um, Hawaiian shirts with the characters and I still have bolts of the, the fabric up in my attic. So if, if I ever need like a, a full, you know, full three piece suit, I'm ready. Um, and Steven was there and we're chatting and I came up and wearing the shirt and he said, this is amazing. Where did you get that shirt? And I turned to my wife, Teresa, who is uh, an art director and an artist and a painter herself. And I said, well, she sewed it for me. He said, Oh, would you make me one? And she kind of laughed and, and didn't want to say no we didn't say yes, and we ended up never following up. So, um, Stephen, if you're listening, um, I still have the fabric, and we're delighted to make you uh, a shirt uh, whenever you want. Yes, yeah, Stephen's nice. uh, one of our big listeners, I believe. So. Yeah, big supporter. If only. <laughs> yeah, well, last time I saw him, he was asking about Kelly, so what can I say? <laughs> um, and then there's one story. I don't know if it's true, but if it's not, don't tell me, because I really need it to be true. When... Um, we were putting together our films and kind of putting it together with sound and music. And they were just so funny. We knew we had something special. Spielberg was in Poland shooting Schindler's List. And we had something new called the Internet. And it was like really novel. And this was like 95, maybe, um, 94, 93. And uh, so we would send um, early cuts of the film to him to look at on the set of Schindler's List. And the story that I heard is at the end of a day of shooting where his actors had had to be, you know, in horrific situations in the concentration camps, he would end the day by showing Animaniacs. So our first audience were the cast and crew of Schindler's List while they were shooting that film. Hmm. Hmm. That's fantastic. I I, I believe that John McCann um, uh, can verify that. I was just listening. I was just uh, re-listening to our interview with him a little while ago, and he, he said something very similar so that's such a fantastic uh story right there that that would be able to very much in the the vein of sullivan's travels um um where you know the guy is a movie star and he finds out at the end it's the mickey mouse cartoons it's making giving joy to people that's the real value not not some high fluid drama so um it was sort of an echo of that in a way Mm -hmm. one of my favorite lines just from the muppet movie is kermit the frog just talking about his making millions of people happy is 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 the spark that gets him off the swamp, you know, to, to go to Hollywood and everything. And um, that is such a an admirable goal. I think it's it comes from such a pure place uh, in your heart to just make somebody happy. Yeah, I think a lot of folks keep score with money. Um, we keep score with how many eyeballs have enjoyed our work. And honestly, the cartoons that we've made, and I think you know, the last twenty two years have proved it. Every time they show, they're seen by more human beings than we will ever personally meet in our lifetime, which I sometimes tell my crews nowadays, and they just sort of freeze up with a sense of responsibility. But so um, 
But the idea that we're reaching out not only to people of today, but people of tomorrow is exciting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, a total side note right here, but you, when you mentioned um, the snakeskin in your office, I remembered that you, uh, you'd posted, and you've, I've got on your Twitter right now, and you have several pictures of both your, um, your life in northern Nigeria, but also um, you have your animation. Uh, it looks like your, your studio right there of Animaniacs with a lot of the, uh, the artifacts and everything. It almost looks like a combination of the Jungle Cruise and, uh, <laughs> and Animaniacs at the same time. It's such an interesting uh, combination right there. Yeah, tons of fun. Actually, I've got a story that uh, Kelly that brings Spielberg and Africa uh -oh. together. Um, as a uh, an eleven year old kid in northern Nigeria, um, I went to an outdoor theater under the stars where a film was projected on a whitewashed wall, and I was surrounded by Bedouins um, wearing their turbans and Tuaregs, and you could hear the camels baying on the other side of the wall, and there was a kerosene generator that was projecting a movie called Jaws. So to watch Jaws for the first time with a whole bunch of people who had never seen a body of water much bigger than a swimming pool was terrific. And then to sit in my office and tell Stephen that story and see the gleam in his eye of joy <laughs> quadrupled the, the excitement. Aww. Fantastic. Um, now, Adu, you're... You've I think you're kind of fancied as an Animaniacs historian in some ways via some of the some of the other creators because uh, you you even found the Animaniacs uh, show bible uh, a, a few uh, months ago. Um, so I always want to know: so how big is this show bible? Is it ten pages, thirty pages, two hundred pages? It's about um, half an inch thick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happened is I kind of, um, you know, I kept throwing stuff in boxes, you know, for, you know, generation after generation. But I <laughs> saved a lot of original storyboards, too. There were times where I'd turn in, like, you know, the copy because I my original was so thick with tape and post-its. And actually, this is before post-its even existed. You know, hand-cut pieces of square paper. <laughs> um, you know, I've got in, in my kind of, I've now in kind of clear plastic bins where I can dig into it, just sort of a grab bag of photos from, you know, events and um, scripts occasionally and, um, and, uh, model sheets and kind of scripts with notes and original storyboards too. I think I've got, uh, some Turkey jerky. Uh, I've got all of Wacko's new cookie, um, you know, in the original boards. So, you know, um, when, when you, when you, when you see, uh, that I passed away, um, check eBay, I'm sure it'll be for sale. <laughs> <laughs> by then I hope all the Warner Brothers lawyers are, are long gone and there'll be nobody to stop it from you know, going to it. <laughs> so yeah, I've got sort of a box that I've uh, yet to completely sort. So expect small treasures to kind of, uh, find they were out to the world as soon as I, you know, get, what's that word? Leisure time. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Nathan, what, a, what, a, let's go back to you for, a. Question off the list there. Well, should I ask a listener question? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, listener Will, he asks, uh, did Tom Ruger assign some of the cartoons to you? So, yeah, like how do how were the cartoons deviated? I guess like. Well, um, typically it was kind of like you know bullets in a machine gun. Yeah, you're up next. Um, <laughs> um, all of the directors and the directing teams were kind of you know happening in order. So. On any given week, you know, another, you know, 12 minutes or 22 minutes of script was handed out. 
Um, so you kind of um, you kind of got what was coming. But I think there were times where Tom would hold something back or push something forward because he had somebody specific in mind. Because you know, like anything creative, it's casting, uh, casting not only to the right director or the right actor, but knowing that somebody has a sense of um, you know, extraordinary sense of volume and humor. Um, and I think, um, you know, there were some that I think Tom threw my way. Um, originally, got I got I'm Mad, which was um, terrific fun. It was actually the first theatrical. If, you, yeah, if you're old enough, you remember a movie, uh, Don Bluth's Thumbelina. So mm-hmm. I'm Mad went up in front of it. But uh, so I did initial, initial storyboards, and then um, Rich Aarons made them uh, awesome. And then uh, I think uh, John um, came in and sort of, you know, really had sort of a feature flavor. So... It was kind of you know a one two three improvement, and you know in the best creative world, that's where uh, that's where things just get better with each draft, and we knew as we had something special there. Um, that's the cartoon where I got the note saying redo make funny, so <laughs> it got it got so much better. Um, and I think also you know for me, um, getting a script was so exciting because you're sort of opening it like a present, and you, you know you're kind of getting to see where the next you know couple of weeks or months of your life would go and which characters you get and um so there was sort of this excitement and uh, often what i would do is I'd, I'd run upstairs and i'd you know kick in randy rogel's door and he'd be jamming at his piano inventing something new and i'd say what do you have in mind here tell me tell me what you're seeing or you know uh or or john or or even tom himself once i kind of you know got past my you know first half season as a storyboard artist and i got really comfortable i understood tom's energies and his rhythms um, you know, for me, collaborating with the writers was um, downloading from them and finding out how I could best catch the energy, spirit, and pace that they had in mind. Nice. Um, you know, you mentioned I'm Mad, and it just made me think of, for a second, how that was done in a different aspect ratio, kind of like, you know, a widescreen. Like letterbox. Letterbox or... kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, a few other cartoons uh, of Animaniacs were done in that style, too. And I think you, I think you, directed at least one or two of the other ones as well do you have any idea if if additional cartoons at least were talked about being theatrically released as well um no i'm mad is the only one that kind of had um that specific destination there might have been others that were kind of queued up uh, potentially mm-hmm. uh and also there are times where what we are really doing is um finding a genre because uh, animation is a medium, not a genre, but within Animaniacs, with our parody, we could find a genre, whether it was an Orson Welles film or whether it was kind of a classic song retold, where it was sort of a parody of um, educational films or whether we were tapping into the energies that had been generated uh, in the golden age, the first golden age of Warner Brothers with Bugs Bunny and, and uh, Taz and Daffy Duck and the others. So... Um, uh, I don't know about the other films, but we knew that uh, I'm Mad was destined for a theatrical. And so, unfortunately, you know, it was um, theatrical ambitions, TV budget. So we uh, we jammed as fast as we could. Um, but uh, we I'd never worked in 16 by 9 before. And it was a different way of thinking. You, know, you have to sort of, uh, you know, rebalance composition. So as an artist, you're coming in and you're laying down, you know, different shapes and uh, different diagonals. Who are some of your biggest influences when it comes to writing and or comedy? Well, I think that would have to be Tom Ruger and uh, Peter Hastings. Actually, in a more traditional sense, it was Chuck Jones. It was Tex Avery. Um, mm-hmm. uh, later, um, I was working at another studio. I was at Sony Pictures for nine years. 
I came bursting out of my boss's office deep in thought, and I knocked this guy into the wall. And I was so apologetic, I lifted him up. It was Mel Brooks. Oh. And I said, oh, Mr. Brooks, my name is Audu. I will be your stalker for the night. <laughs> Got a laugh instead of a wince. Um, but I was able to thank him for Blazing Saddles and you know, the movies that gave me per- permission to be zany. And, of course, the, you know, the, the, uh, the source of all of this stuff goes back to Mad Magazine. Um, mm. the, you know, the, the, I used to make friends with older kids just to be able to kind of sneak in and look at their collections because they, you know, they had two more years than I did. Um, so I think Mad Magazine and its sense of um, you know, riffing on the sacred, um, it's, it's the job of comedy and you know, the work that we do to poke holes in pretension. And so I think all of the things I mentioned accomplish that with wit and uh, excellence and pace, and they're memorable for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, Adu, when we were first planning this, uh, our discussion, you said to you said to me, "Don't forget, don't forget to, to ask me about when you won this Emmy, and you had to you had to help out Elmo." So oh. p- please tell yeah, me. I barely remember the story. Let me tell it at length. <laughs> <laughs> so, a um, little bit of background here. Um, the first time we were up for an Emmy, we flew the whole crew out to New York City. It was so exciting. And, you know, Gene McCurdy and, uh, and Tom and the writers and the directors. And it was just a, a terrifically exciting time. And then they called our category and they brought up a piece of film and we realized it was the wrong episode. So we all kind of looked at each other like, we lost. And we did. Uh, but a year later, we had a winner of an episode. Uh, it was at Radio City Music Hall, which is even more exciting. And there's nothing more delicious than losing and then winning. So I think we're somewhere on the 10th row. It was, uh, it was on national TV on NBC. And the presenter were uh, uh, two soap opera stars and then Elmo. This is Kevin Clash uh, pre-scandal back in the day. So uh, Elmo's sort of behind this podium and uh, reading off the category. Animaniacs wins. So we all rush the stage and Tom starts to give the speech. And there's a little backstory here. I, I had rubber baloney in my in my pocket in case he asked me to bring baloney out of my slacks on national TV. I was ready to do it. <laughs> so I'm standing behind Tom and I glance down and I see Kevin Clash packed in tight like an origami character in this podium reaching out with the Elmo puppet on. And then I noticed blood dripping off of his elbow. Drip, 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 drip. Tom finishes the speech, lights go down, and among other things, I was also a scoutmaster. Um, and so I grab my kerchief, apply a little pressure, because he had jammed himself on a nail that was inside of the podium and punctured his forearm, and he was just bleeding badly. So he's you know, a little shocky. We're all kind of blinded because the lights are on and other lights are off. So I help him backstage. I ask for, you know, can somebody get a doctor, a paramedic, somebody? So I set him down on this sort of big pile of canvases, like some folded-up curtain. And then from behind me, I hear a voice say, can I help? I turn around. It is Mr. Fred Rogers offering to assist me while I do first aid on Elmo. And then I hear, what's going on? What's going on? Regis Philbin comes up on the other. (laughs) And then this looming presence over me. I look up. It's Tim Robbins. And then I feel feather tickle the top of my head. Two of the Rockettes, who were part of the kind of uh, Radio City Music Hall presentation, they lean in. They're really helpful. And I just have to pause as I put pressure on the wound, thinking, this is the most special moment of my professional life. As I do first aid on Elmo, assisted by Mr. Rogers, the Rockettes, and Regis Phil. Remember every detail. So there it is. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what a fantastic story. Wow. Uh, well, we are, we, I can't believe it, but we're, all, we're almost out of time already. Um, but I, I gotta ask before we, we wrap things up, um, what, what's going on right now in the, in the world of Adu Payton and, and animation mm. and cartoon production? It's busy. I'm trying to figure out what I can tell you. Um, <laughs> always, you know, we are, um, we're living the life of Merlin, past, present, and future all at once. Uh, just come back from a week in Korea where I was uh, um, working with various 2D studios. In fact, some of the same ones we worked with almost 20 years ago um, in preparation for a new series that will be coming out next year. Uh, before this, um, I spent about nine years at Mattel where I did Monster High, Ever After High, Hot Wheels, Battle Force 5, and uh, a number of other shows. Uh, before that, I was a producer at um, Sony Pictures, formerly Columbia TriStar, where I was the producer on Godzilla, uh, Extreme Ghostbusters, um, Project Eager. I did an early CGI show, Starship Troopers, Roughnecks, um, directed some CG, uh, did uh, Stuart Little 3, which was great because I got to work with Michael J. Fox and you know, Hugh Laurie and Gina Davis. And if you listen carefully to the soundtrack, you'll hear little oofs in her dialogue because she was nine months pregnant with twins. So I saw they'd kick. You know, we couldn't get her back in, big star. Um, so basically, as I wrapped up Animaniacs um, as a director, it was time for me to kind of spread my wings. So I went over to Sony. Uh, to produce, where I did uh, basically a lot of the big tentpole um, movies became 40-episode TV shows. So I was producer and director on those for nine years. Um, and here I am back in Burbank and still drawing funny pictures every single day and working with terrific crews. And very exciting for me is um, working with people that were my audience when I was working on Animaniacs. Um, so they go from fans to colleagues and peers um, far too quickly. So um, it's it's delightful to see how, in the same ways um, I feel like I stood on the shoulders of giants, I'm a small part, and the teams that I worked with at Warner Brothers in the day uh, are, are part of an influence on a whole new generation of artists and storytellers. Fantastic. Um, you know, I, I, I've got to ask, you know, uh, with the... With the Animaniacs revival reboot, whatever the, the folks at Warner Brothers want to call it, uh, what are your uh, whatever your what are your your hopes, your concerns? What are your thoughts about the upcoming uh, Animaniacs series? Well, as long as we're not recording any of this, let me tell you what I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, we loved Animaniacs, and because Animaniacs was. A love letter to old Hollywood. You know, it was the Marx Brothers. It was the Stooges. It was the tropes that came out of the 30s and 40s. Ultimately, the it was vaudeville. Um, so my hope is that the next generation that works with these characters and um, you know get to you know pull the strings of the marionettes, if you will, I hope they love that original source material as much as we did. Um, the there's a lot of shows out there nowadays that. Um, get their juice out of being sarcastic about of sort of um, mocking something. Aren't, aren't we all alike in thinking this was stupid and let's just kind of tear it down a little bit. But Animaniacs was never that. It was always sort of propping up the love of the energy of wildness, that, that sort of untamed aspect, that id that we all wanted 
to be that wild child who had sort of that Bugs Bunny energy of, you know, ain't I a stinker? You know, you don't pick a fight, but you finish one. Um, <laughs> so my hope is that they understand what made the recipe work before, and they use the technology and talent that's out there today to, to really um, amp it up and make something that we can all really fall in love with again. Fantastic. Well, this has been a fantastic pleasure and really, I mean, my goodness, such an informative uh, discussion. We can't really thank you enough, Adu, for, for taking the time to, to be on our podcast and uh, let our listeners know uh, just a little glimpse of what it was like to work on the show. And heck, you know, we'd really love to have you on the show again in the, in the future so we can find out a little bit more behind the scenes stories and uh, hey, what's going on in, the, in your future? Well, uh, I'd be delighted to come back. And let me tell you, I've saved some really good stories for later. And also, I've got the, you know, the big bin of drawings, sketches, scripts, and notes, including stuff on shows that we never made. Oh. And, uh, so let me tease you with that and say <laughs> that uh, once I dig through some of that stuff, uh, there'll be some real treasure to share. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it at that as it, at, at a to-be-continued. And uh, again, thank you so much. And uh, let's go ahead and get to some contact information. Nathan, where can people get in contact with you online? Joey, I'm on Twitter. You can find me there. DjangoFT, that's me. <laughs> and Kelly, what about you? Uh, email kelly at bigshinyrobot.com. Or message me at Twitter at Yoda Princess, Y-O-D-A-P-R-N-C-S-S. And I'm also now on Discord, Kelly and the Minicast. That's right. You can join the Discord discussion, uh, which is discord.animanicast.com. Now, Adu, what about you? Well, I don't even know my Twitter. I think it's Adu Payton because there's not too many of us out there. No, there isn't. <laughs> it might be the real Adu Payton because uh, you know I might have forgotten my password the first time I tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if you can't log back in, there's certainly a lot of great uh, pictures and, and things like that on your uh, Twitter feed that people should uh, follow along and, and check out. Not only uh, pictures of uh, your life in Africa, but also uh, some original art as well. So uh, I know I really appreciate those tweets whenever they come out <laughs> i love turning big pencils into little pencils that's physics <laughs> well and as for the animaniacast you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player of choice we're on facebook we're on twitter instagram all those things and of course you can check out us check us out over at animaniacast.com where we are part of the retro zap network of podcasts check out retro zap and all of its marvelous pop culture content all right well let's wrap it up for tonight so for nathan kelly and adu this is joey saying good night everybody adu everybody good night everybody good night everybody This podcast is not endorsed by Warner Brothers or Amblin Entertainment and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Animaniacs, the Warner Brothers logo, all names, pictures, and sounds of the Animaniacs characters or any other Animaniacs-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Warner Brothers, Amblin Entertainment, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the Animaniacast unless otherwise indicated.